Well, if you recall last week, we were in chapter 19, the opening verses of chapter 19, and we saw that Pilate had interviewed Jesus. It was really a, a series of interviews, and then he presented Jesus as the king. He said, Behold your king. And Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests, responded in a pretty remarkable way. They said, We have no king but Caesar. Now this is going to lead to the next portion of chapter 19 where we'll be in today's lesson. And it's going to set up the crucifixion. It's going to take us into the crucifixion. And as I told you two weeks ago, one of the things we're trying to do as we go through these last hours of Jesus' life that are so familiar to us is to look at them a little bit differently. Last week, uh, Mitchell began by starting with that response from the two high priests, and then going backwards. Well, this week we're going to take a different kind of look at a very well-known scene, the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 19. And what we're going to do is we're going to read through these verses, and then we're going to unpack them. But we're going to unpack them a little bit differently than maybe you've ever seen them unpacked before. Uh, we're going to take a different perspective than we often take when looking at this very familiar story. So let's, let's look at verse 16 and take it through verse 30 and see what we can learn from this remarkable incident that took place more than 2,000 years ago, but that still has incredible significance for you and I today. It opens up by, they took Jesus, they being the uh, soldiers, the Roman soldiers, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side. And Jesus between them. I always read this uh, particular part of the story and I can't help but think about that time when James and John came to Jesus and, and boldly claimed, you know, hey, when you set up your kingdom, may we sit on your right and your left. And Jesus said, you really don't know what you're asking for. And it, it makes me think of this. Here's Jesus being taken to be crucified, and he's going to be crucified between two men, one on his right and one on his left. I don't know if there's supposed to be significance between those two incidents, but in a way, what James and John were asking for is not really what they thought. Well, it goes on, it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews, and the Jews being those religious leaders, read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, most likely. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Aramaic being the language that the Jews spoke, and Latin was the language of the Romans, and Greek was what everyone else spoke. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldier, soldiers did these things. 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his home. And then he begins to wrap up this section. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished and to fulfill the scripture, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, what's really interesting about John's take on these last hours of Jesus' life is the brevity that he uses. If you go back and compare his take on the three synoptic gospels, his is the shortest version version of them all. He provides us with very little details. And and it's because what John is doing is he's focusing all of his attention on Jesus. He doesn't tell us anything about uh, Simon of Cyrene who help carry Jesus' cross. He just says Jesus took up his cross and went to Golgotha. He, he wants our attention to be f- totally focused, riveted on what's happening to and around Jesus. And Jesus is being crucified. He doesn't go into all the gory details of how Jesus is crucified. He just simply tells us that he was. Again, it's very brief. It's very to the point because he's got other things he's trying to focus on. So Jesus is at the center of his story. Jesus hanging on the cross. And at either side, these two thieves, these criminals who were hanging, so to speak, where James and John asked to be. One on either side. And then he describes the the crowd, the, the individuals, the participants of this morbid scene. You have the Jews, the the leaders of the Sanhedrin, including Caiaphas and Annas. I think they were there. They would have wanted to see this thing right to the bitter end. They were getting what they wanted. Jesus Christ crucified. You have Pilate. I think Pilate was somewhere in the vicinity because he's the one who sent Jesus to the cross. It was his command that made this whole thing possible. You've got the soldiers. You've got Mary and the other women. You have Mary and the sister of Mary, and you have the wife of Clopas, and then you have Mary Magdalene. So you have these four women who've gathered around the base of the cross in order to watch the crucifixion of Jesus. Mary watching the crucifixion of her own son. And then, of course, you have John, the the disciple whom Jesus loved. Once again, in this passage, he refers to himself in the third person. So this, this is kind of the, the little semicircle of individuals who, who are surrounding the cross of Jesus as he's going through this incredibly deadly and devastating crucifixion. And so John is basically describing what he sees. He's an eyewitness. He's looking at what's happening right before his eyes. As far as we can tell, none of the other disciples are anywhere near Golgotha, Calvary. They don't want anything to do with this. They are in hiding, including Peter. But John is there, as we can tell from the narrative. 
And so he's telling us what's going on, but there's really two things happening. And, and it's all the activity happening around the cross, which involves the soldiers, the thieves, the, the women. I think Pilate again is there. We know Caiaphas and Annas are probably there. The Sanhedrin are well represented. Nicodemus is in that crowd. All these people are there. It's all that's happening around the cross. And then there's the things that are happening on the cross. Now, this is the part where John doesn't provide very much detail. He, he just tells us that at one point Jesus gets thirsty. Uh, he doesn't give us a lot of what Jesus says on the cross. There's at least seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross, and he only gives us really one of them. So there's things happening around the cross, but there's something significant, significant taking place on the cross. And this is where I want to spend most of our time today. See, this entire scene has been preordained by God. This has all been His doing. And we've seen that very clearly that every one of these people, Caiaphas, Annas, Pilate, Herod, are operating by the sovereign will of God. They think they're in control, but they're really not. Everything is happening according to God's plan, not according to their plans. And all their actions... Even the actions of those um, Roman soldiers who are gambling over Jesus' clothes are according to the will of God. Every single thing that is happening. And see, John tells us repeatedly in these verses that Scripture is being fulfilled. Now, when he says Scripture, he's referring to Old Testament Scripture. Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled at this very moment. In this scene, because this is the long-term, from before the foundation of the world, will of God being fulfilled. So what do we see? Verse 24 says, This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here's these Roman soldiers who have taken and divided up his clothing, and then they've taken that outer garment, that cloak, which was seamless and of very fine quality, and rather than split it up into fours, they've decided to gamble over it, to cast lots over it. Where does this come from? It goes all the way back to Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, the psalmist wrote these words. And they were a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And here they are being fulfilled. How about verse 28? After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill Scripture. In other words, He knows Old Testament Scripture. And He is doing this, not so much because He's thirsty, but in order to fulfill what Scripture said. He states, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And this is in per perfect fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. See, Jesus is so in tune with the will of God and the word of God that he is helping to fulfill it even as he suffers on the cross by making this request, I thirst, knowing that what they're going to do is they're going to give him that sour wine and thus fulfill Scripture. Later on, we didn't read this verse, but in verse 36, it says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We'll see in next week's lesson that 
when they get ready to take these men down from the cross, it's important that they be dead. So they, they go and send soldiers to break their legs, but they find Jesus already dead. And so therefore they don't break his legs. And once again, it's to fulfill scripture. Exodus 12, 46 says, you shall not break any of its bones. A reference to the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb. And so here's Jesus fulfilling the Passover by his, giving his life as the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, the unblemished lamb, but his legs are not broken. No bone is broken. Also, excuse me, also Psalm 34, 20 says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So everything that is happening in this passage is a fulfillment of scripture. The predetermined will of God. And yet as John is standing there at that moment watching this scene unfold, he does not yet understand that. He doesn't get it. He can only share what he sees. He can only describe what his eyes take in. But in John 21, 24, as he wraps up this gospel, here's what he says. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. These things are true. I saw them with my own eyes. See, G John is describing from a first-hand experience what he saw that day. He sees the Roman soldiers gambling. He sees all these things taking place, but his vision is limited. At that moment, as he's standing there watching, he's not filled with the Holy Spirit. He can't see beyond the veil. He doesn't know exactly what's going to take place. All he knows is that his Messiah is dying on the cross. Here's what he can see. Pilate probably second guessing. And he was second guessing all along. And I guarantee if he's there in the vicinity, if he's watching, even from a distance, he's still, still second guessing his decision to put this innocent man to death. He sees the high priest gloating. I'm sure they didn't high five back in that day, but somehow these men are looking at one another and gleefully gloating over the death of Jesus. He sees the soldiers gambling over his garments. And he sees the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, grieving over the death of this innocent man, her son, their friend and Messiah. He sees all these things. But again, his vision is limited. He can't see what God is doing behind the scenes. He doesn't know the full ramifications yet of all that's taking place on the cross and not just around the cross. But he'll later write about it. In 1 John 4, verses 9 through 10, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, now catch this, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now as far as I know, that's really the only place this word propitiation occurs in the New Testament. Now we're going to take a look at it in just a second. But John is saying something very, very significant. Years later when he wrote this first letter, He's, he's sharing what he's learned since the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. He now knows things that he didn't know then. He sees things now that he didn't see then. And he sees this thing called 
Jesus' propitiation for our sins, that he came and he died for us. See, there's some, some incredible things happening on the cross. And Paul would later write to the Romans and explain what he understood took place that day. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. In other words, none of us could ever get saved by keeping the law. Yes, the law is holy and righteous, but as sinful men, we're ill-equipped to keep the righteous commands of God. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, Paul says, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. See, here's Paul years later, after the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, letting us know that something pretty significant took place on the cross. There was far more going on than women mourning, high priests gloating, and Roman soldiers gambling. And what was taking place on the cross is what makes all the difference in the world for you and I. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, was sacrificing His life for you and I. Now you may go, Ken, I already know that. That's, that's what we celebrate at Easter. You may know that, but you, you may not fully appreciate that. I know I don't. And I can go into Easter and I can, I can celebrate this Easter like I've done every other Easter. And that's just go through the motions, sing the songs, and miss the true significance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. See, there's invisible forces at work. We know there's a spiritual battle going on. We looked at that two weeks ago. It began in the Garden of Eden. It, it took place in the wilderness when Satan tempted, or at least a, attempted to tempt Jesus. And then we saw it again happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. But now on the cross, all these things, this battle between darkness and light, good and evil is taking place. But incredible things are happening behind the scenes. And John is not able to see these things because he has limited vision. And that's why his description is so terse and short. And it's almost as if he's blowing right past it. And in a way, he probably is because he wants to get to the good news. He wants to get to the resurrection. And while the resurrection is indeed good news, we have to understand that so much of what we appreciate about our salvation happened at the cross, on the cross, because of the cross. And see, years later, he would come to appreciate this. And he would say again in that first letter, 1 John 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. See, there's so much packed into these verses. As John and as Paul write about what happened? What was God doing on the cross? And it should give us a, a remarkable change in perspective. See, here's what happens. We tend to read this story and we focus on what's being done to Jesus. Now, again, John is pretty short and sweet about the story. The other gospel writers go into greater detail. And, and so we, we want to look at what happened to Jesus. We sometimes want to just turn our face away from what happened to Jesus because it's so hard to look at. But, but really what we should be looking at is what is God doing through Jesus? That's the point of the story. 
not what's happening to him, but what is happening for us through him. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. See, Jesus on the cross is the, the turning point in history. It's that fulcrum point where everything begins to change. And if we go backwards into the Old Testament, we see his, the, the plan of God predicted all those scriptures that are being fulfilled. In the New Testament, we get it explained to us. That's why the letters of Paul are so important. Books like Roman, Romans are so important to help us understand the true significance of all that took place on the cross. And that's where we're going to spend our time. But before we go there, I want to look into the Old Testament and see exactly what was predicted. And it's found in the book of Isaiah. And it begins in chapter 52 as Isaiah gives us this incredible poem, this song about the coming Messiah. And it's a mixture of good news, bad news about this anointed one, this chosen one of God who's going to come. And in chapter 52, verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. You can already begin to see this is a picture of the cross. As Jesus goes to the cross, but it's being predicted hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths. And then he goes on and talks about what's going to happen as a result of him being lifted up. Then in chapter 53, verse 4, he picks it up and says, Surely he, this anointed one, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. In other words, he, does, he was being punished by God. He was afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Here, Isaiah is trying to let us know that whoever this person is, is going to go through all of this, and it will look like he's suffering for his own sins, but he clearly says, no, he was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He's going through this for somebody else's sins, but he's not done. He says he will be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There, there's again that picture of this individual, this anointed one of God who's going to be high and lifted up, is, is going to be punished, and he's going to bear the iniquity of everyone who has ever lived. Their sins, their sorrows, their griefs. See, here we are in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, centuries earlier, and God is prophesying the coming of His Son. And as we fast forward into the book of John, chapter 19, we see all of this taking place. Everything that John sees is happening as Jesus Christ is being crucified. But what we have to understand is that as bad as this picture is, what Isaiah says is that he will bring peace. Peace with God. Peace because of our sins being taken care of, that he has stepped into our place and taken our punishment upon himself. And then he says, we will be healed. 
Again, you've got to remember this is centuries earlier, but Isaiah has prophesied under the influence of the Holy Spirit that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is going to bring healing to mankind. See, all that was happening to Jesus was done for our benefit. Everything he goes through, everything Isaiah just described and John witnessed is for our benefit. He's doing it for us. He's doing it on behalf of us. See, mankind had a problem. Mankind had a terminal condition. And Paul writes a lot about this. One of the things I love about Paul is that he's always writing to Christians and he's always reminding those Christians, hey, don't forget where you came from. Yes, rejoice in the fact of who you are and what you've gained and that you're a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom of God, but never forget where you once came from. Keep your head on a swivel. Keep your eyes focused on what God has in store for you. Also keep looking back at where he saved you from, and that will help you live where you are. So listen to what he says in, to the believers in Ephesus. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. This is what you used to be. You were dead. You were helpless. You were hopeless. You were lifeless. He says virtually the same thing to the believers in Colossae. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. You, you were plagued by this sin nature and there was nothing you could do to get rid of it. He wants them to remember their former self prior to coming to faith in Christ. He tells the Ephesians, at one time you were darkness. You weren't in darkness, he, he's saying, you were darkness. You were the opposite of God. God is light. In Him and in Him there is no darkness at all. These people were darkness. They had become dark. They had become dead. And yet, Jesus Christ died in their place. He tells the Corinthians, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or, or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he drops this bombshell. Some of you were once like that. In other words, that was you prior to coming to faith in Christ. See, mankind had a dark and deadly terminal disease, but God had a plan for it. God wanted to do something about it. That's why, again, in chapter 52 of Isaiah, verse 13, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is a picture of Jesus' crucifixion. How do we know that? Because the scriptures tell us. Look at John chapter 12, verse 32. And when I am lifted up, Jesus said, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John adds the disclaimer. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is not talking about his exaltation when he ascends on high and sits at the right hand of God, the Father. Yes, he will be exalted in that form, but he's being high and lifted up by being lifted up on the cross. We've described that as his coronation. He, he is being lifted up. He, he's 
been mocked and had a crown shoved on his head, a, a crown of thorns and a, a cheap purple robe, and he's given a scepter made of reeds, but he truly is the king and he is coronated on the cross. Because that's where he defeats all the powers of darkness and evil. That's where he defeats sin and death. On the cross. See, Jesus' death was the objective of his coming the entire time. It's the whole reason he came. We know this from Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clung onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, like you and me, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's Paul writing years later, his understanding of all that took place on the cross, what Jesus did, what he accomplished on my behalf and on your behalf. And so let's just take a look at just a few of the things that were accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross. The first one is propitiation. Now, these are going to be lofty sounding theological words. And, and I affectionately call them the shuns because they all end in T-I-O-N. But they're, they're sophisticated, sophisticated, can't even say it, sophisticatedly sounding words that have very simple but profound meanings. So propitiation, what are we talking about? Well, sin is an affront to a holy God. We should understand that by now, right? God is holy and in Him is no darkness whatsoever. He cannot tolerate sin. He has to deal with sin. His justice demands that He deal with sin. And so propitiation is a way of, of helping us understand how He did that, how He took care of sin. See, on the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath against sin by taking our sins upon Himself. Now, that may be hard for you to get your head around, but what Jesus did when He went on the cross, He bore our sins. He took on our sins. That's clearly what Isaiah wrote in chapter 53. So He took on, on Himself our sin and all the condemnation that comes with it. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made the one who did not know sin, in other words, was sinless, to be sin for us. He bore our sins and all the condemnation and the wrath of God that that sin deserves. And in doing so, He fully satisfied. That's what the word propitiation means. He satisfied the just judgment of God against sin. He propitiated. He satisfied God by what He did on the cross. See, John would later write in that first letter, He, Jesus Himself, is the propitiation for our sins. And not just for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He took on the sins of the world. I can't even begin, begin to understand it, let alone explain it. He took on all the sins all the weight, all the guilt, and all the punishment those sins deserve from Adam and Eve all the way to right here, right now. 
that should impact all of us profoundly because we didn't deserve it. But you see, God is satisfied. He's been propitiated because of Jesus' death, because of what he accomplished on the cross. And that brings the second shun, reconciliation. We have been reconciled. The the Greek word tells us that it's a return to favor. We're put back in a right standing with God. We've been reconciled with him. We were out of reconciliation. We were enemies of God, but no longer. Why? Because of what Jesus did. Paul told the Romans, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more since we have been reconciled, made right with God, restored to a right relationship with God, will we be saved by his life? See, Jesus' death gave us an ability to be made right with a God with whom we were out of sorts. We were his enemies. We were strangers. We were aliens. We were outside outside the household of God. And yet God, through the death of Jesus, restored us to a right relationship and reconciled us. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Though you were once far away from God, now you have been brought near to Him because of the blood of Christ. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. I didn't do anything to deserve a, a renewed relationship with God Almighty. It was all because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Sinful men like you and me have been restored to a right relationship with God. Now, John didn't see that. He didn't understand it as he stood at the base of the cross, standing there with Mary and the other women, watching the soldiers gamble over the clothes of Jesus. He didn't understand this, but he would later understand it and fully appreciate it and write about it. But see, here we are, this side of the cross, more than 2,000 years later, and we should wrap our heads and hearts around this, that we are now right with God. And it's because Jesus chose to be the agent of reconciliation. He's the one who did what had to be done to restore us. That's why Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, we're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this, catch this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. God is the one who did it. And how did he do it? By sending his son to die in our place. So he's fully satisfied, but God satisfied himself. God satisfied his own justice by sending his own son to die in my place and in your place. Amazing. Incredible. And that leads us to the third, redemption. We have been redeemed. This deals specifically with the problem of our sin. We have a sin problem. Every person born is born into sin. We inherit the sin nature of Adam, and then we get real busy as quickly as we can, and then we commit our own sins. We have a sin problem, and redemption is what deals with it. The Greek word has to do with liberation. It's the idea of making a payment to redeem someone out of slavery. It was a common term used in the slave market. Somebody was sold into slavery. Somebody had to sell themselves into slavery because they couldn't pay a debt. And someone would pay or buy them out of slavery, redeem them, purchase them out of the slave market and set them free. That's that's the meaning of this word, that we have been redeemed. We've been bought off the slave markets. We were once slaves to sin and 
we've been redeemed. God paid the price, a price we couldn't pay. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the means. So he paid the price for us to redeem us out of slavery. See, he purchased us, and Paul tells us, at a high price. Now, now, this is one of the things you have to get your head around. The high price that Christ or God paid for you and I, and it was Jesus. Listen to what Paul or Peter says. You were ransomed. You were redeemed. You were bought out from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you, you were born into this. It's in your DNA. You were born a slave. And you weren't bought out of it with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, amazing, incredible, difficult to understand, but we have to do what we can to, to put these thoughts into our minds and down into our hearts so that we fully grasp what Jesus did for us on the cross. We were purchased by God at the price of His own Son who shed His blood for us, sinless, perfect, holy, righteous, but He gave Himself so that we might be redeemed out of slavery. The fourth is substitution, and it's built into this whole thing we've been talking about, is that Jesus Christ substituted Himself for us. He took our place. This deals with the penalty phase, that, that we were the ones who deserved to die, and the penalty for sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the righteous judgment for that is death, according to Romans. We deserve to die, but Jesus took our place. He served as our sinless substitute. It's a, it's a picture going back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system where people would take a, a lamb and they would, they would offer it up. Jesus is now offering Himself up. He's taking our place. He becomes the sacrifice, the unblemished, perfect sacrifice. And He sheds His blood, His life, so that we might live, so that we might be redeemed. This idea of substitution is something that's difficult for us to understand because most of us wouldn't do this for anybody. I, I would probably die for my wife and I would probably die for my kids and my grandkids, but I most certainly wouldn't die for you. I don't think so. But see, here's the sinless Son of God offering His life for you and me. Substituting Himself for us. He died in our place and on our behalf. In spite of everything He knew about us, He still died for us. He died for Peter. He, he died for Philip. He died for, for all the disciples. He died for Mary and those other women standing there. He even died for those Roman soldiers. He died substituting Himself for sinful mankind. And once again, we, we just take this for granted. We don't think about it and we don't appreciate it like we should. Well, the fifth one is expiation. This is one we don't talk about much in the church. And this, again, has to do with the, the penalty for sin that Jesus paid our penalty by offering His life as a substitute. 
but what does that do for my sinful state? Does, how does that change anything? I still sin. I still have a sin nature. So, so what did his death really accomplish? Expiation means that my sins have been covered and I have been cleansed. This is a really hard one to get my head around. Again, because I still tend to sin. I still have that sin nature that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. And yet, my sins have been cleansed. They've been expiated. They've been taken care of. See, Jesus not only pays the penalty, but He removes the guilt and any fear of future condemnation. That's why you and I as Christians should not live with guilt and fear. We shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't fret. We shouldn't worry because our sins have been taken care of. Now, that's not license to go sin like we want. Paul wrote about that pretty clearly, that we're not free to go sin just because our sins have been forgiven. It should encourage us not to sin. See, I love what Paul tells us in Romans 8.1. Now there is no condemnation, none whatsoever. That Greek word no means no, none, zilch, zero. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. We no longer have to worry about being condemned for our sins because our sins are fully forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, they've been set apart. They've been taken away. They, they've been expiated. He tells the Colossians, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your deadness, your lifelessness, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now catch this, by canceling, I love this, canceling the record of death that stood against us with all its legal demands. It's like if you own a house and someday you're privileged to pay off your mortgage and you get to take that document and either frame it or burn it. You have no more debt, paid in full. That's what this is telling us. And how did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. Your sin debt has been expiated. It has been paid in full. And this leads us to my favorite one, justification. What is justification? This is by far the best of all of these that we're looking at. But this really deals with this issue of my sin being taken care of, I'm no longer sinful or guilty according to the Word of God. But the important thing is that I'm declared righteous. See, if we leave that out, that's the point we're missing. And many of us live as if, okay, my friend, sins have been forgiven. Now I got to live the rest of my life not sinning anymore and doing nothing but good things. And then maybe I'll still get to heaven. No, that's not the picture here. That's not what Jesus accomplished. I have been justified. I have been justified. We often refer to justification as just as if I'd never sinned. That's an only partial description. It's an inadequate description. There's so much more here. See, being acceptable to God is about much more than just a lack of sin. You got to have righteousness. Having your sins removed does not make you righteous. It just means you no longer have sin but you still have a problem. You've got a righteousness deficit. And that's what justification is all about. See, Jesus told the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to have a superior righteousness, a better righteousness. 
And so justification takes care of that. And it comes in two stages. And this is the part we leave out. The first stage is my sins are forgiven. I have a, I have a deficit of sin, but my sins are wiped clean. They're expiated. They're taken care of. They're removed. But that leaves me with no sin. But what's the problem? I got to have righteousness. I, I've got, I can't get into the kingdom without righteousness. And so the second part is I'm given righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. I, I get a righteousness that's not of my own. It's sometimes referred to as alien righteousness. And it exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's the only righteousness that will allow me entrance into the kingdom of God. See, I, I've justified and, and this takes the last we're going to look at, the last shun, imputation. How does God pull this off? This, this, this one's amazing. We are imputed the righteousness of Christ. We get his righteousness. I don't deserve it. Didn't do anything to earn it, but that's what I get. See, imputation is the reckoning or the charging to my account from somebody else's account what belongs to them. It's like if somebody just up and gave me a million dollars that didn't belong to me. That's imputation. They're reckoning to my account something that I didn't earn and I don't deserve. But this is far greater. I'm being imputed Christ's righteousness. The only kind of righteousness that will put me in that right standing with God that will allow me entrance into the kingdom of God. I have my sin credited to him. In other words, as Isaiah said, all my sins were dumped on him and go into his account and his righteousness is put into my account. I'm credited as righteous. Truly mind-blowing. There's nothing really like it on this planet. That, that we can go to that even remotely compares to what has happened. We go from not just not having sin, which is great, but it's not enough to having full righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice what it says, the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of Ken, not the righteousness of Jim. It's, it's not my righteousness. It's God's righteousness that flows through Christ to me. I'm imputed righteousness. That's why I stand before God right in here, right now, as do you, fully righteous. So we've blown through these seven shuns and there's more that, than we have time to look at. And we could go much deeper into every one of them. But what you want, I want you to understand is that on the cross, all these things took place. So as John is standing there looking at everything happening around the cross and all the things being done to Jesus as he hangs on the cross, what he didn't understand at the moment were all these things. And we need to understand them. And we need to appreciate them. And as we prepare to go into Easter in just a few weeks, we need to embrace them and we need to rejoice in them and never stop thinking about them because they are our hope. They're our hope. For now 
and for the future. All the promises of God hinge on these things. So this, this week, what I want you to do is wrestle with a couple of questions. I've, I've narrowed it down to two because I think these are going to be hard enough for you. The first one is, which one of these shuns, these doctrines, resonates the most with you and why? Is it imputation? Is it justification? Is it substitution? Redemption? What, which one of them kind of strikes a chord with you? And I want you to think about it and, and meditate on it. And then I want you to thank God for it. Secondly, it's easy for even you and I, even though we weren't there at the cross, we have four Gospels that describe the scene. It's easy for us to focus on all that's happening to Jesus. In other words, we, we become bystanders, but we miss all that's being done for us by Jesus. And that's why we spent so much time today talking about these things. Why is it so important for you and I to recognize and appreciate all that he accomplished on the cross? You can go watch the Passion. You can cry and you can get emotional about all the things that happened to Jesus. But see, the point isn't what's happening to him. It's what he's doing for us, what he did for us, what he accomplished, what he successfully did. Father, I thank you for the story of your son's crucifixion. But more than anything, I thank you for the clarification we've been given in the New Testament that all that it means and stands for. It's not the story of, of a Jewish rabbi who martyrs him, himself and dies a gruesome death. This is the story of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords willingly sacrificing his life, substituting himself for the, the humanity that he created that walked away, that turned its back and chose a, a life of darkness and sin. It's his way of redeeming us back. May we never forget that. May, may we never just blow past all that happened on the cross for our benefit. Would you bless the men this week as they think about these things, as they talk about them with their wives, with their friends, with their table mates, that they might really struggle and wrestle with these things so that they will take hold of their hearts. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. You guys have a great week and I'll see you next week.